Good morning, Bridge. How are we doing, guys? So good to see you guys today. Thanks for swimming here. <laughs> Can we start with a survey this morning? Be all right with a little quick survey. How many of you uh, would say, by, by raise of hand, how many of you would say that you came to know Jesus largely because you had a, a mother or father who loved Jesus? You can see some hands? Yeah. I look across the room. Now hold them up. Let everybody look across the room, okay? How many of you would say that not only did you have a mother or father, but you also had, a, had grandparents? So that means you're, you're third-generation Christians, right? How many of you would say that, uh, that your grandparents had parents that were followers of Christ, and, and so you're fifth or sixth-generation Christians? How many of you say that you are the first person in your family to fall in love with Jesus? Anybody? Got any first-generation Christians? Congratulations. Good to see you guys. Well, let's do, let's do it another way now. Let's think about it for a minute. Think about your kind of immediate family, your, your siblings, your parents, your children. Uh, let's think about that for a minute. What percentage of your family would you say is in fact in love with Jesus? How many of you would say that 50% or more of your family are, are truly followers of Jesus Christ? Okay, good, good, good. How many say 40%? 30%? 20%? 10%? None? Nobody else? You're the only one? Got any of those? Come on, ask it this way. How many of you can think of at least one person in your immediate family that needs Jesus? So I guess we need today's sermon really, really badly, okay? Because uh, we're all in the same boat together. Can I get an amen? I love it when I get everybody to say amen at the same time on something, anything, just anything that'll get us kind of thinking. I grew up in a family with a mother who loved Jesus with all of her heart and a father who didn't really know anything about him. My memories of going to visit my dad's family as a kid are not pleasant memories. We went to visit family, and typically it went like have dinner, the adults played cards and drank until somebody got mad, and they had a fight, and the kids got rushed out of the room. And that was just kind of, that was the dynamic of me growing up uh, in, in my family. And as a teenager, my mom would say, don't do that. And my dad would say, don't tell your mom that we're doing this. <laughs> that was kind of the, the thing that I grew up in as a kid. Interestingly enough, my uh, mother grew up in the same dynamic. My grandmother loved Jesus with all of her heart. I actually have a plaque hanging on my office wall where grandma was named the mother of the church that I grew up in. I was the, the last of the living charter members of that church. My grandfather, most of his life, did not serve the Lord, nothing to do with God, didn't want to talk about it. And I'm not even going to tell you the dating advice he gave me when I turned 16. Not even going to go there. Uh, but you can imagine what it might have been. And I know you all got your own stories. And we all have our family stories. And we all have our, our dynamics. But, but the bottom line is we all have family members who need Jesus. Can I get one more amen in the house? So we're in a series, for those of you that are uh, first-timers today, or maybe you've been away for a while, we're in a series we're calling Ripple Effects. We kicked off a couple of weeks ago, and we're talking about that reality that, uh, that there are ripple effects that come from the choices that we make in life, that every choice has a consequence, but it's not just to our lives, but it's to the lives of the people and the relationships that we have across the way. If you want the notes to any of these or all of these messages, send us an email at info at bridgechurch.cc. You can go to the Bridge app right now and, and open up the notes of today's message, follow along, take up your own notes and your own uh, uh, thoughts and then save them to your journal. And if you're going to put anything on social media, and I hope you will, 
We talked about that a little bit last week. Just uh, there's, there's a thread that goes out. There's a ripple effect that goes out when you do that to all of your friends. And if they like it, it goes to their friends. And thousands of people can hear what's going on, at least a glimpse of what's going on here. So take a minute to do that today. Track with us in the message. You that are watching online, thank you so much for the emails that I got this week. People from around the country that wrote in wanted their commitment cards. And, uh, and we prayed over their commitment cards this week as well. And so thank you. It's about 330 people on average that watch our services online these days. And so we're excited about what God is doing, not just here in all of our locations, but across the country and even other parts of the world. So let's get into it. We've established so far that, uh, that our lives, in fact, create this ripple effect, that there's a splash that happens, and then once you make that splash, there are ripples that come from it. We identified four truths. So if you were here, tell me if you remember these things. Priorities, we're calling the splash our priorities in life. Priorities must flow from the inside out, right? Not outside in, but inside out. The weaker an inside circle is, the, the less potential there is for an outside circle. Making sense so far? If an outside circle takes priority over an inside circle, if we start saying, you know what, my relationship with Jesus is not all that important right now because I really need to focus on my job, then guess what you just did? You just created chaos in your life because you can't drop a rock in an outside circle without creating completing, competing ripples. I mean, it just creates all kinds of chaos when you don't get it right. But when order is maintained, when you make a big splash in the center, the ripple effect is profound across every area of our lives. We're going to rehearse that until it becomes second nature to you throughout this whole series uh, because it's critical that we get that down. If you don't learn anything else from me in this series, learn those simple, simple Truths. Then we identified what the priorities are and the center circle, the big splashes in our relationship with, with Jesus. Seek ye first the kingdom of heaven, and these things will be added. We talked about that last week, and I got to tell you, I, I bless my socks off. I, I, don't, I didn't get an actual count from the office, but stacks and stacks and stacks of commitment cards last week from people that said, you know, we're going to commit a time to God, a tithe. Uh, a time with God, a tithe to God, and a, t and a talent for God. I spent almost all day Tuesday just praying over cards, just pulling cards in front of me and, and, and reading that name and praying for you that as you make Christ first in your life that all these things will be added to you just as he promised. And if for some reason you couldn't be here last week, you didn't get your card in, stop by guest services. We'd be glad to put a card in your hand. And uh, there's so many of them, we didn't get them all processed this week. It'll be a while to get them back to you, but we are gonna mail them back to you, laminated, so you can keep them in the days ahead. Today, we're talking about the first ripple, which will, of course, will be the biggest ripple that comes off of that initial splash. It is the most important human relationships we have. We're talking about, hello, are you out there? What are we talking about? We're talking about our family. First, our marriage, if you're married, then your kids, if you have kids, and then your extended family. We're talking about making a big enough splash in the center that we have a profound impact on our families. Now hear me, Here, here's what I want you to get, and then we're going to get into the how-tos. We live in a culture that says a successful family is measured how? By the size house that you live in, by the amount of money that you have in the bank, whether your kids get a higher education or not, the social status and recognition. There's a whole lot of things that the culture says uh, are critical if you're going to be a successful family, and, and there's not necessarily anything wrong with any of that stuff. 
But hear me, guys, when you make a big enough splash in the center that Jesus truly becomes the center of your life, you begin to see our citizenship is not here, it's in heaven. That's what happens. And there's this trigger in your heart that says, I'm just here for a while, I'm just passing through. The trophies are going to wind up in the attic gathering dust. The houses are going to get torn down. You don't believe it? Go to my Facebook wall. You can see the, the video of it. I mean, that's just what's going to happen to the stuff that the culture says is critical to success. And so after a while, you begin to ask yourself, why am I here? I mean, why am I here? I mean, if, if God's highest goal for you and me is that we spend eternity with him, then why doesn't he just take us to heaven when we get saved? You ever thought about that? Somebody said, there's only two things you can do on earth that you can't do in heaven. Share your faith with unbelievers, because there won't be any of those in heaven. They're here, not there. And sin, because sin will not enter there. So which one of those two things do you think God's left you here to do? (laughs) Which one of those two do you do most often? God bless you. Thanks for coming to church today. (laughs) Hear me. When you make Jesus Christ number one in your life, the most important question in your heart becomes, is my family going to heaven with me? That's what begins to define your life. And more directly to what I want to talk to you about for a few minutes this morning, am I the kind of Christian that makes the gospel attractive to the people who know me the best? who know me when the masks are off, who know me when I'm tired, who know me when I'm frustrated, who know me the best. There are five things, very quickly, well, as quickly as I'm capable of anyway, uh, five things that you must be, not do. This This isn't a go do sermon. This is a be sermon, okay? There are five things you must be in order to do the best job you can of attracting your family to know Jesus. Five things we must be. Say it with me. Five things I must be. Come on. Five things I must be in order to attract my family to know Jesus Christ. Number one's on the screens already. I must be with Jesus. Again, splash in the center. Seek first the kingdom of heaven. The bigger the splash in the center, the more effect you have in terms of the ripples that flow out from that. One of the reasons that's so important is that on the negative side, you can't give what you don't have. Hello? And on the, on the positive side, once you've really been with Jesus, it shows. Am I right? And don't misunderstand me. I'm not talking about being perfect. Any perfect people? God bless that hand. There's another church for you. This is not it. This is not where, no. Smart Alec. There ain't no perfect people. We're not talking about being perfect. I am talking about, though, having a confrontation. I'm talking about having an encounter. I'm talking about Paul on the road to Damascus being presented with the Savior, and something happened that changed everything for him. I remember vividly when I was a kid. I must have been 10, 11 years old. And, uh, and, uh, and this lady came into church one morning. I use the term lady loosely because most of the people didn't look at her that way. She came in. This is in the 60s, remember. And uh, she had a sleeveless blouse. <gasps> 
and a tight skirt and makeup on. This is in the 60s in a holiness church. You just didn't do that kind of stuff. And she came in, and I have, I'll admit to you, I have no clue what songs they sang that day or what the preacher had to say because I spent the whole day staring at her. <laughs> she was purdy to me. <laughs> but I remember most about that event that morning, that day, is at the end of the service when Pastor DeMusto said, You know, we're going to dismiss the service now, but if any of you want to pray, the altars are open. We've got some folks that would love to pray with you. And as uh, as most of the room was making their way out, she beat her way through the crowd and got to the altar. And she fell in that altar, and she cried, and her mascara began to run. My mama, who was one of the prayer workers, prayed with her, and I had to sit and wait for all that to be done. They spent two and a half hours. Pastor's wife came over and joined them, and we spent two and a half hours where she prayed her way through to Jesus. The next Sunday morning, I came to church. (laughs) I want to know if she was here. And she came in, and she didn't have any sleeves in her blouse, and she had a really short, tight skirt on, and she still had makeup on, but she was different. There was just something, not physically glowing about her, but there was a look in her eye that even as a 10 or 11-year-old, I recognized. There was a there was a, a, a difference in her gait. There was a way she held her head that was different, and I knew something had happened to this amazing woman uh, that rocked my world. I knew she had been with Jesus. Now, the tragic part of that story, I want you to hold on to that, but I'll tell you the tragic part of the story is that after a few weeks, I realized she wasn't there, and I finally asked my mom, what happened to that lady that you prayed with that Sunday that, and one of the dear old saints of the church slipped up beside her after a few weeks and put an armor on her and said, honey, we're so glad you're with us, but if you're going to be here, we're going to have to wash that face, and we're going to have to put some clothes on you, and it devastated her so badly she never came back. I want to believe she went somewhere else. I have no confidence that she did. So why do we say this is a place where you can belong before you believe? Because I will never lead a church that will do that to another human being as long as I live. Did she have a lot of junk in her life? Yeah, probably did. Did she have a lot of work to do to become like Jesus? Yeah, she probably did. Don't we all? But I'm telling you that when you've been with Jesus, something changes. Something is different that your family ought to be able to pick up on. One of the best examples I know of in the Bible is the story of the Samaritan woman of the well. Jesus came along one day, made it a point to go to that place, and he's at the well where the community came to gather water, and, and they had an exchange that changed her life in that moment. He pointed to that ancient well, and he said, John 4, 13 and 14, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give will never be thirsty. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And then in in that description of the difference between that water and the kind of water he offered, they began to talk honestly about her life. Verse 17, she said, I have no husband. She replied, Jesus said to her, you're right. 
When you say you have no husband, the fact is you've had five husbands, and the man you're now with is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. Now, I want you to understand something. This is huge. He was not beating her up for her choices. He was saying, I know that you've been trying to satisfy that emptiness in your heart with something that doesn't satisfy. He said, I know that you've been struggling to quench that thirst, and it just won't be quenched, and there's not a man on the planet that can quench it. There's not a woman on the planet, guys, that can quench it. There is a hole in our souls, and it cannot be filled with human relationships or acquisitions or achievements or any of that stuff. There is an emptiness in all of us, and Jesus is not there to judge her or beat her up. He's there to say, there's a God-shaped void in your your soul, and I can fill it. I can fill that space that you've been longing to fill. And I know, guys, some of you maybe are still there. Some of you watching online may still be there. The, The harder you try to fill that empty hole, that dissatisfaction, the more driven you become to do more and more stuff to fill it. And none of it works. It, it just doesn't work. I mean, at the end of the day, you, you, you lay in the bed at night going, man, there's got to be more life than this. You look in the mirror, and you can't bring yourself to look in the mirror anymore because you know what you've been doing to try to fill that emptiness isn't filling it up. If anything, it's just destroying your own sense of self-worth. You know that. And Jesus is saying, I can fill that emptiness. I can fill it forever. I can satisfy that longing in your heart. Now, how do you think? In that moment, how do you think that woman responded to that offer? Anybody think she said, well, yeah, that sounds pretty good, but I kind of like the downward spiral that I'm on. I think I'll just keep doing what I've been doing, hope it gets different results. You think that's what she said? Verse 15, the woman said to him, sir, give me this water. Just imagine her looking at him. I don't think it was a dry, boring, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty. I think there was a longing in her heart, the, a hope against hope that what he just said was true. As, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming back here, keep going to other men, keep going to these places that aren't satisfying me, help me, fill me up. And in that moment that she asked for it, everything in her life changed. Her entire eternal trajectory changed in that moment. Still had stuff to work on. Remember, there's a guy back home that she's not married to. There's still stuff to deal with. But down deep in her spirit, everything changed in that moment. So what did she do? Anybody know the story? You know what she did? She bolted to town and told everybody who would listen John 4, 29, I like the way the message paraphrases it. Come see a man who knew all the things I did, who knows me inside and out. You see, she knew the people in this small town knew her. They were probably second cousins once removed. I mean, come on. Isn't that how small towns are? I think everybody in Wayne County is related somewhere or another. I just, that's kind of the way it works. I know some second cousins that are married in Wayne County. I ain't even going to talk about that, but it's true. You do too. Come on. She did not come to them with, I met Jesus and I now have my act together and it's your turn. I am now a perfect human being 
and you were less than me. That's, uh, anybody think that's what she did? I got mine's time. Do you get yours? No, no, no. It was more like, guys, you're family. You know me. I mean, you know the struggles that I've had. You know what I've tried to do to fill this hole in my soul. But I met a man today who told me why I did those things. And he offered me a better way to live, and I signed up. I said, I wanted that. I want that. And something settled in my spirit that changed the way I do life. And I want you guys to know him too. Can you come meet him? Because he's this special kind of, didn't even know for sure who he was, but she just knew something had changed in her life. You see, guys, when you've been with Jesus, I mean really been with Jesus, um, she hadn't just decided to clean up her act. She hadn't just decided to turn over a new leaf. She encountered the God of the universe who changed her from the inside out, and it gave her a peace that I believe showed on her face. Now, how do you think the town reacted to her? John 4, 39, many of the Samaritans from that village committed themselves to him because of what? The woman's witness. A witness isn't a perfect person. A witness is what? Somebody who saw the accident and gives you an accurate account of what they saw. I met a man and he changed everything. Come meet that guy. I remember vividly the first time I encountered Jesus. I was raised in church. I already mentioned my mother, my grandmother, deeply committed Christians. It was the night before the baccalaureate service in my senior year in high school that I finally met Jesus for real. And uh, long story, I don't have time to go into today. I will eventually. But, but I left the church that night on a, on a Saturday night and I ran straight to the hangout where all the guys used to gather and sit on the hoods of the car and drink beer and watch the cars drive by. Anybody remember drive-bys and had a whole different meaning back then? You know, just, you know, you'd ride for a while and then park on, sit on the hood and watch people drive by for a while, and that's just what we did. Cruise the drag. Anybody remember cruise the, I'm showing my age here. Yeah. God bless that hand. I see it. I went straight to those guys. I said, guys, you're not going to believe what happened to me tonight. I got saved. And they said, what? Sa- saved? You, you wrecked your car? <laughs> what do you mean got saved? What are you talking about? They didn't have a clue. I didn't care. I was just so excited. I didn't want to tell anybody would listen. I went home and told my parents. Remember, I told you about my mom and dad. I went home and told my parents. And, and uh, mom cried for joy. Dad didn't say a word. He did not say a word. Uh, but mom was thrilled. Less than a year later, the Lord called me into ministry, and, and dad, again, never said a word to me. The only thing dad said to me is, can you make a living at that? Now, he was concerned about that, you know. But then I heard the word when I was called to, uh, to preach that, that dad was saying around our little town, we're from Bladenboro, a little town of a thousand people in the southeast corner of the state, and, uh, and he's telling everybody in town, my boy's going to be a preacher, my boy's going to be a preacher. He never said it to me, but he said it to everybody in town that would listen, so I knew he'd come to my first sermon and so I preached from the story where Paul and Silas were in prison and an earthquake came. God sent an earthquake that broke the shackles open before they left. The prison guard asked them the question, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Paul answered him, Acts 16, 31, they replied, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved and your household. And I talked that night mostly about the the, the beauty and the power of entire households coming to Christ together, knowing that my dad was going to be there. 
He did not give his life to Christ that night. But on Tuesday, he watched Billy Graham on TV, and he gave his life to Christ alone in our living room. Yes, you can do that. The next Sunday night, I'm sitting in church with the girl that I was dating at the time, and they made an altar, just a general altar call. Everybody come, and let's have a prayer around the altar. And I stepped out into the aisle. I didn't even know Dad was sitting back there behind me. I stepped out and stepped back for her to go forward. And when I stepped back, Dad ran into me. Then I, whoa, and I looked up, and it's my dad. And he's crying. And we fell in the altars together. He gave his life to Jesus. And a year later, he met him. 41 years old. All I'm saying to you guys is that when you've been with Jesus, it shows. I can't guarantee you everybody in your family will come to Christ. At the end of the day, it's their choice. Uh, The Bible doesn't say that everybody in Samaria came. Verse 39 says many committed. Verse 41 says a lot more became believers. But I can guarantee you this. Your best hope of reaching your family for Jesus is is to make sure that you put Jesus at the center of your life and then let your encounter with Jesus show in the way you do your life. First step, I ain't got time for this much in all of them, but you got to get this one down. If you really want to lead your family to Christ, you got to be with Jesus. The second thing you got to be is you got to be the real deal. You got to be the real deal. I know a lot of people. I think that being a Christian is all about do's and don'ts, and, and I know there are some Christians that try to combat that by saying, well, I'm not perfect, I'm just forgiven, and that's true, but it ignores a critical truth if you aren't careful, and that is that people who don't know Jesus are watching you once you name the name of Jesus to see if you're for real. They've, they've met an awful lot of people who have claimed to be followers of Jesus Christ, and they didn't see any difference in their lives from what they saw in their own lives, and so they're, they're watching you, and, and they're really paying attention to you to see if what you claim happened did in fact happen. If the void is in your life is filled or not, if they really see a difference in you. Here's how Peter put it in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. The message, paraphrase it this way. Uh, friends, this world is not your home, so don't make yourselves cozy in it. Don't indulge your ego at the expense of your soul. In other words, don't live to the flesh at the expense of your eternity. Live an exemplary life among the natives, people who are native to this world, so that your actions, you see that phrase? So that your actions will refute their prejudices. Then they'll be won over to God's side and be there to join in the celebration when he arrives. If you want them to go to heaven with you, the best way to do that is to be the real deal. Take this thing seriously and be who God called you to be. At the end of the day, it will be your life after you've been with Jesus that will ultimately help them see that Christianity is real. And yes, they will test you. They will. Some of them will even ostracize you for your faith. But you know what I found through the years? I found through the years that the people that push back the hardest are the ones that are closest to coming to Jesus. Because they're scared to death that what you're telling them is not true. And they hope against hope that it is. Because there's a hole in their souls too. And so don't be nervous when somebody pushes back or argues back or talks about you behind your back. Just... Be with Jesus and then be real about this thing. All I'm saying is, is, is don't be perfect. None of us are perfect. I'm saying own up when you mess up. I'm saying there ought to be a difference in your life 
after Jesus fills the void in your heart. And if there isn't, can I humbly suggest that you come back to the well and ask him for an encounter that fills that hole for your sake, but also for your family's sake? I learned that lesson the hard way. I told you I gave my life to Christ just a couple of nights before I graduated from high school. And one of my first agendas, of course, was to try to help my dad come to the Lord and my granddad, both of whom were far from God. And, and, uh, and so I witnessed as much as I could to both of them. It's hard sometimes when it's immediate family. I pray that God will put people into their lives that, that they could listen to. But I tried several different times. My granddad was the hardest. He didn't want to hear it from me. But I would go every time I could. I mean, every Sunday afternoon, generally in those days, I'd go hang out for a while and chat and be friendly, and then eventually I'd find a way to segue the conversation, talk to Granddad about Jesus. One day we were having one of those Sunday afternoon conversations, and Granddad said, "Uh, Jim, have you been to my fishing pond lately? No, I haven't, Granddad. He said, well, let's walk out there together. And he grabbed a couple of pieces of white bread. He had a small pond just there behind his house, you know, half acre kind of thing. And, uh, um, and he handed me a piece of bread, and he took a piece of bread, and we walked to the edge of the pond, and he started pulling pieces of bread, uh, little bits of bread, and he'd throw it in the water, and, you know, the little sun perch or whatever else would come up and grab that bread. And, and we just stood there and fed fish for a while, not saying a word, just kind of feeding fish. And without us looking at each other at all, my granddad said, you know, Jim, I was in uh, uh, Buddy's gas station the other day, and he was talking about uh, having to close his business because there were so many people that owed him money uh, that he just couldn't, he couldn't stay in business. And he had his book out there on the countertop. And so I got curious and I opened the book and I began to flip through it and um, I found your name. Did you know you owed Buddy money? And I had honestly forgotten about it. I was in college at that point. It was in the high school days. You know, back in those days, gas was 25 cents a gallon, believe it or not. And so you'd get a dollar's worth and go out for the evening or two dollars worth and splurge a little bit, you know. And, uh, and sometimes I'd give him a dollar and he'd put the other dollar on my tab. I drove a school bus in those days. I'd pay the tab at the end of the month. But apparently I didn't pay at all. And it accumulated a little bit, $30, $35, something like that. Uh, And here's granddad, who I'm trying to win to Jesus, who's telling me, you know, it's important for our family name that that you be a man of integrity, that you pay your honest and just debts. And I'm standing there humiliated. I'm ashamed. I'm embarrassed. I'm devastated to think that my behavior has actually become an obstacle to him coming to Christ instead of an aid to him coming to Christ. And I vowed to my granddad then and there, I said, I will, I'll fix this. Granddad, I, I thank you for telling me. I am so sorry. I will fix this. And I went straight to Buddy's place of business and said, Buddy, I didn't know, but I know now, and I will fix this. I was making $100 a week in those days, so I gave him $5 a week until I paid that $35 debt off. And the first thing I did was go to granddad and said, it's paid. He never said a word. He said, good. That was it. The idea that somehow my life had become an obstacle instead of a means for him coming to Christ was devastating. Are you, are you tracking with me, guys? Christianity is not about do's and don'ts, but there is something about it that says I've been with Jesus and everything's 
changed and, 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 and the void really is filled and, and I'm going to do my best to be a person of integrity from now on. And they are watching. Number three is be prayerful. You've got to be with Jesus. You've got to be the real deal. And then you've got to be prayerful. In recent years, uh, the Lord's given me opportunity to talk to an awful lot of pastors and, and leaders and through the Acts 2 network and even through the bridge. Uh, God's given me the opportunity to coach a lot of pastors. I do an online thing once a month, and we've got nine pastors from three states that are logging in. And so I just have a lot of chances to, to speak into pastors' lives. I had two in the office this week. And so just a neat opportunity. But I get a wide range of questions from these guys uh, up, you know, about church growth and about small groups and about leadership development and all that kind of stuff. But, but here's the question that I get a lot. It's probably the most common question that I get both from the church in Chesapeake that we led and now here at the bridge, they would say something like, why are so many people getting saved at the bridge? Oh, by the way, I, I owe you an apology. I, I, uh, I, I told you something that wasn't true last week, uh, and I'm truly sorry for that. I told you that 150 people gave their lives to Christ in 2017 at the bridge. I got the full report this week. 275 people gave their lives to Christ at the bridge last year. <laughs> Buckle your seatbelt. Our vision's coming next week. We'll talk about that. We ain't seen nothing yet, what God's going to do. But in most cases, when these pastors ask those kinds of questions, they want to know about strategies. They want to know about programs. They want to know about marketing. They want to know about the, the, the mechanics of so many people coming to Jesus. And sometimes they're a little bit disappointed when I say, well, we try to create an atmosphere, you know, where people that are far from God can come in and, uh, and, and understand what we're doing. We pick songs that make sense to them, even if they aren't followers of Christ. We try to put the sermons on the bottom shelves. We, treat, we preach the whole truth of God's Word, but we try to make it understandable, user-friendly, available so people understand what we're talking about. All of that's true, but there's one reason above every other reason that so many people got saved at the church in Chesapeake and why so many people are getting saved at the bridge. And that is because we pray for them to be saved. That's what we do. We pray. We fast and we pray. We're day 14 of a 21-day fast, and I guarantee you a lot of you are praying for family members that they'll come to know Jesus during this time. I mean, that's something that we do uh, a lot. We organize prayer times. We create prayer lists. Uh, if you were to take the time to pull all those prayer things out of the wall back there, I guarantee you, you'd see pray my husband, pray that my wife, pray that my kids, pray that my grandkids, pray that my, my extended family are coming to know Jesus. We pray for people who desperately need Jesus. In Chesapeake, we actually, when we built the main auditorium, which is about the same size as this one, before we put the carpet down, we brought everybody in on a Sunday morning and gave them a Sharpie, and they wrote the names of the people, of the people that they were praying to come to know Jesus on the floor. And, uh, and then we sprayed it with a sealer, and then we put the carpet down on top of it. There are 15,000 names on the floor of the worship center in community church. And, uh, and one of the great joys for me uh, over the last four or five years that I led the church is almost every month, in fact, I would say on average once a month, somebody would come up to me and say, Pastor, Pastor, you see that guy over there? His name's on the floor. One of my favorites was a guy that came up to me one day and he said, hi, introduced himself. He said, my friend, I came to church first time today with my friend, and he said to come and tell you my name is on the floor and that that would make sense to you. <laughs> but my absolute favorite was the lady that came to me in tears one day 
and said, I just want you to know my name is on the floor and I'm a follower of Jesus Christ now. And I said, that's fantastic. Who put your name on the floor? She said, I was here that morning. I put my name on the floor. So this week, uh, we're going to take up all the carpet. <laughs> Pastor Jim just had a heart attack. and <laughs> We don't have to put it on the floor because it's on our hearts. It's on those slips of paper back there. The point is we're praying. We don't even set attendance goals. We don't say let's have you know, 3,000 people for Easter this year. We, we may set a goal of having 200 people saved at Easter this year. But what we're striving for is to fill up heaven and empty hell. That's what we're after. That's what we're trying to do around here. And we pray that that happens. And we know that the most powerful prayers are the prayers that we pray together with each other, for each other. Matthew 18, 19, and 20. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name there, I am with you. Kim and I experienced that firsthand in the first church that we pastored together uh, 40, none of your business years ago. And uh, there was a lady that came to our church uh, whose name was Thelma, and she had the whole church, little country church, 45, 50 people, and she had the whole church praying for Elbert. Elbert was a, I don't even know how to describe Elbert, uh, other than to say he was in his 60s, farmer, cigar out of one corner of his mouth and profanity out of the other corner of his mouth every time you saw him. That's just who Elbert was. Elbert had been kicked out of every store in town because he would cuss in front of anybody. He did, that's what was his vocabulary. Women, children, nuns. I mean, he didn't care. He just, that's just, and so he'd been told, you're not welcome here anymore. Been kicked out of every store in town, literally every store in town. And we're praying for Albert. And, uh, and one day, Albert's sitting uh, at lunch with his wife, and he said, uh, Thelma, I'm going to Florence. Go get me some teeth. They had 24-hour denture things down there. You guys don't know that. They got them here now. But back then, Florence is where he had to go. And, uh, and I'm going to that church of yours Sunday. Out of the blue. She was terrified to say anything about it. So she just said, okay. You know, and inside she's going, ah. He came to church that morning, got there late. Thumb was convinced he wasn't coming. He got there late, slipped in the back row. And when I gave the invitation, he knocked people out of the way to get to the front and gave his life to Jesus. Had not been, he was 65 years old, had not been in church since he was 21 at his mother's funeral. Gave his life to Jesus. And that week, he went to every store in town, stuck his head in the door and said, I know I'm not welcome. That's fine. I just wanted you to know I gave my life to Jesus yesterday. And he'd close the door and leave. That church doubled that year because somebody had been with Jesus. But they'd been with Jesus because somebody had prayed in agreement together. If you sincerely want your family in heaven, you've got to be with Jesus. You've got to be the real deal. You've got to be prayerful. You ready for a hard one? You ready for a hard one? You want to skip number four? Here we go. I must be a forgiver. I just, I got to be a forgiver. Let's be honest, guys. We all come from dysfunctional families. Can I see a hand? God bless that hand. I mean, come on. 
You take an imperfect person, connect them with an imperfect person, you don't get perfection. You get dysfunction. That's just reality. That's what it is. And then you add some babies, some children, some teenagers. You know, we're all dysfunctional at some level or another. And that's why families can be a hotbed of hurts. True? I mean, the truth is, everybody gets hurt in family relationships somewhere along the way. I mean, look at somebody right now and say, is that true? Is that true? Is that true? Yeah. At least we agree on something. I got two amens today. If that's true, and it is, and if you want to be a godly influence in their lives, you tracking with me? Then you have to decide in advance that when they do it to you, you have chosen to forgive. You don't wait till the moment to decide whether you're going to forgive, because in the heat of the moment, you won't. You won't be able to. And it may take a season for you to get to the place where you can finally say, you know what, I'm tired of carrying this thing. I'm going I'm to forgive them for my sake. And so what I'm saying to you is you decide today, I choose to be a forgiver no matter what happens. It's not on the basis of who they are or what they did or didn't do. It's on the basis of who I am because I've been with Jesus and I'm committed to being the real deal, and I'm praying for their salvation. Therefore, I will not hold on to these hurts. I will not allow them to become a bitterness in my heart. Hebrews 12, 15, see to it that no one misses the grace of God and that no bitter root grows up to cause trouble and defile many. Where do bitter roots come from? From holding on to unforgiveness. It ultimately becomes a bitterness that starts to define the way you relate to each other. Now, here's what I need you to hear. i got to move on, but here's what I need you to hear. When you allow that to happen in your life, and a bitter root starts to define how you relate to the people in your family, particularly those who don't yet know Jesus, what's the first phrase in that verse? See to it that no one misses the grace of God. You may become the obstacle... You want to finish the sentence or do you want me to? To them finding the grace that you found. That's why, among a host of reasons, that's one of the reasons why Jesus said, you can't be forgiven unless you forgive. And if you won't forgive, you can't be forgiven. But when you're forgiven, you need to forgive. It's a cycle. Because it is in receiving grace that we give grace, but it is in giving grace that we receive grace for ourselves. And unless you've reached that perfection level, one hand over here somewhere, for the rest of us, we got work to do. We got work to do, and you're not perfect because you lied in church. So I just, just. <laughs> so I let go. I'm not saying put yourself in harm's way. If you've got some dysfunctional people in your family and they hurt you every time you turn around, I'm not saying trust them. I try, you know, forgiveness is a gift. Trust is earned. I'm not saying put yourself back in harm's way. I'm saying let go of your desire to get even with them. I'm saying you've got to begin to pray for a miracle in their lives. You've got to start seeing them through the eyes of the same grace that Jesus sees you through. We sincerely want your family to come to know Jesus. You've got to be with Jesus. You've got to be the real deal. You've got to be prayerful. You've got to be a forgiver. And then finally, and I'll close, is I got to be patient. I got to be patient. Everyone has to go on their own spiritual journey. Everybody has their own choices to make. If we get anxious for someone, especially a spouse or a child, 
uh, or a parent, somebody close to us, we get anxious for them to come to Jesus. If we aren't careful, we will try to push them, and we will always push them away before we push them to Christ. So we have to be patient with them. Aren't you glad God was patient with you? Yeah. 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. My mom prayed for my dad for 22 years. I'd like to think I had a small part in him coming to Christ, but my praying, loving, patient mama gets the credit for him coming to Christ. My grandmother prayed for my grandfather for 70 years. And one night when they were in their mid-80s, my cousin Suzanne was staying with them so that they could stay at home late in life. And one night Suzanne heard Grandpa making noises. She went into his room and, Grandpa, are you all right? And he said, go get your Grandma. They had separate bedrooms at that point in their lives. And and Suzanne said, well, Granddad, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. Grandma's asleep. He said, she'll want to hear this. Go get Grandma. Suzanne went and said, Grandma, Grandpa wants you. And she got up like she always did. And she went in to his room. And he walked in the room. He had a glow on his face. And Grandma said she knew before he even said the words, I gave my life to Jesus tonight, Thelma. And they got three months together before he had a stroke and died. You think she was glad she was patient with him you can see they get forever together they get forever together at granddad's funeral the preacher got up and said Blaney McKeithen did not give his life to Jesus and I bristled because I knew he had and I thought maybe surely this preacher knows the journey but here's what he said he said uh, but at the end of his life he presented his life to Jesus and Jesus accepted him just like he had a whole life to give that's grace that's great. But that's not where the ripple effect ends in my family. I mentioned my dad's family when we started this conversation today, uh, being far from God. My grandmother, my paternal grandmother, moved south uh, at one point when I was a teenager, and uh, dad was ill, and grandma came down to help take care of us, and, and uh, uh, mom shared her faith with grandma after dad died. Her kids uh, came and got her and said, you need to come home and, and, and let us take care of you. Well, I didn't hear from them again for 35 years. Uh, my Uncle Bill and uh, Uncle Maury came down for Dad's funeral. They drove down from Canada for the funeral. They left. I never saw them again. Some of my cousins are probably watching the service right now uh, in Ontario. But uh, I get a call from Uncle Bill out of the blue one night, 10 years or so ago. He said, I, I heard you're a preacher. And I said, uh, yes, sir. He said, we want to come and worship with you. And I went, Kim, this is Uncle Bill. He wants to worship with us. And she said, what? She'd never even met any of my family. And, and I was, uh, this is Uncle Bill Wall? <laughs> well, yeah, sure. Yeah, we'd love to have you come. They came. And long story, a little bit longer, <laughs> Grandma went back and shared Jesus with her family. Found out Aunt Lee had already come to the Lord. She shared Jesus with her husband, who shared Jesus with their six kids, five of whom are walking with the Lord these days. And I found out in these 35 years that our two kind of American and Canadian branches had kind of 
parted ways. I found out God had been doing this work in my family, and I got pastors and missionaries and private Christian school principals and worship leaders, and uh, just it, the, the Wall family is serving Jesus, and I get second-generation worship leaders that I Facebook all the time. We're, we're Facebooking every day. Kim went and met uh, my lady cousins. They were like sisters immediately because Jesus glued their hearts together. The ripple effect goes on in ways that you don't even know about. Yeah. So I got this whole family, plenty more that need Jesus. But I got this whole family that serves Jesus now. I got to close. The bottom line of what I'm trying to say to you in all of this stuff, I brought a picture of my family. Uh, Those are my three boys and their wives and our seven grandkids. This is a couple years old. Had the privilege to baptize all three of my boys. Baptized our oldest grandson two years ago. Ronnie has just asked me to come up in February and water baptize him. Here's, Here's what I want to say to you. I've dedicated my life to winning as many people to Jesus as I can. And I've been blessed. Oh, man. I mean, I've got on record well over 10,000 people that I've had the privilege to pray with to receive Christ. But if these people don't go to heaven with me, I failed. I failed. That's what it's got to be about, guys. I can't make them do it but I can be with Jesus and I can be the real deal and I can pray and I can forgive when they do something that hurts my feelings. I can be patient and I can trust that as Joshua did so long ago that when I pray the declaration as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord that God will honor that declaration. So here's how I want to serve, close this service today. If you're, I mean, I think everybody in the room said there's somebody in your family needs Jesus. If you're ready to pray that declaration with me, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord, and I will do what I can do. I will be who I can be. I will be with Jesus. I will be the real deal. I will be prayerful. I will be a forgiver. I will be patient. If you're willing to say that with me, would you just stand to your feet right now? If you're not ready, that's fine. Nobody's going to embarrass you. We're not going to single you out. But if you're ready to make that declaration this morning, stand with me and let's pray that prayer together. Maybe you're here and you've never been with Jesus. Maybe you've never had an encounter with Jesus. Maybe that's where it begins for you. I, I just want an encounter with Jesus, and, and I'm going to give him my life. You stand with us too. Let's just start right there where you are. We don't care how far you've been on this journey. We just care about from now forward. Can we pray that prayer together? You're standing with a family member. Could you hold hands or put a hand on the shoulder or something? If you're alone, put a hand on your chest, kind of signifying in unity with the members of your family that know Jesus and for those that don't. I'm going to pray the prayer. I want you to repeat it after me. And by all means, pray a lot in your own words, but let's pray this prayer. Jesus, help me to encounter you. Come on. Jesus, help me to encounter you in a very real way. 
and then help me to be the real deal. Prompt me regularly to pray, not just for me, but for my family. Help me, Lord, to be a forgiver so that I will be a conduit of grace, not an obstacle to it. And then give me patience to trust that in your timing and in theirs, they will come to you too. Father, you know who's praying. You know what's going on in our families. And I do pray in Jesus' name that you're speaking to us and through us a ripple effect across the generations that will bring glory to your name in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you guys. Thanks so much for coming to the bridge this morning. The alders are open. There's people that would love to pray with you this morning. Don't leave. If you want to pray with somebody, take advantage of it. There's a prayer wall back there. You can put your family's names on it if you haven't already. God bless you guys. Thanks for coming. First time guests, go by the VIP table. We'll see you next time.